slowing everything down is important. And it's almost like if the surfboard was like acupressure or acupuncture meridians, every good nose ride starts with a good turn that sets you up in the right place on the wave. Most people are like, wait, what? I thought I just ran to the nose. How do we be more precise? How do we do less in a more beautiful way? Welcome to the Basis Surf Podcast. We're with Cassia Meder, uh, one of the best female surfers and longboarders of all time. I mean, when people think about female longboarders, I'm sure you're probably one of the first names to pop up, um, but you're much more than that. You run retreats. I mean, you're a designer. You do all sorts of creative stuff, live in LA, and uh, it's super cool. I'm very honored to have you. Thanks for joining, Cassia. Thank you so much for having me, Van. I'm like, yeah, it's always good to have a chat. Yeah, all my friends have been telling me you got to have Cassia on. Um, I think we have a lot of mutual friends through this kind of New York, LA connection. And it's kind of funny how, you know, how big obviously the world is, but how small the surfing world is in particular. And it's just crazy how that overlaps in that way. Totally. It's wild. I mean, definitely there is so much connection between the East and West Coast. And I think just like a lot of similarities between um, surf enthusiasm and people getting into surfing or re um, connecting with surfing at like a different place in their life, you know, a different stage in their life. And I feel like there's a lot of that between like the LA, New York community specifically. Oh, that's interesting to think about. And that's, that's so true. Uh, especially when you have like a big like city and then, but then you also happen to have waves, obviously the waves in California are way better than the waves there or over here. But, um, there's this, I don't know, there's this kind of froth that you develop because, um, it's just this unique joy that you get to experience that you wouldn't expect living in a big city, you know, especially in New York. But even if you're living in LA, let's say you're on the East side or something like that. I mean, it's still kind of a mission to get out there, you know, and it's just probably this beautiful respite or, you know, just way to just enjoy and just have a way to get out of the city and just uh, clear your mind and everything. Um, Totally. It's so funny. I was just down surfing the last couple of days in San Diego and I've, you know, gr growing up, being born and raised in LA and living here currently, I'm always like threatening to move just because I'm like, the waves aren't that good. And still they're better than, as you said, New York, New York, yeah. it's amazing, but it's not like as consistent as some other places. So I'm always threatening to go back down to San Diego the thing I love about it is exactly what you said, Van. It keeps my froth levels so high. I'm like 42 years, well, I'm 41. I'll be 42 this year. Um, but I'm just as frothy as like the first day I started surfing. Um, just because I think, you know, for many years being a pro surfer, uh, that was one thing. I, that was what I was doing. And I kind of, you know, like anything you get disenchanted, but then not having proximity to good waves and like working more and then having surfing be the thing that I get to do. I'm like, seriously, in the last couple years, my froth level is like through the roof. And my friend Leah's boyfriend, Alex, calls me queen froth because <laughs> I'm like, so excited about just like the smallest chillest even if it's a little messy wave it they're just like what's wrong with you and i'm just so pumped so i know yeah. that you can relate oh totally totally i i think that's what's unique about new york surf culture is like the 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 froth to quality of way or not quality because we get really good waves but consistency of waves they're like inversely correlated it's a it's a really weird thing 
But then I think what makes LA and New York cool is that you get this combination of like froth, but then you also get like all the things that make living in a big city cool. You got that creative aspect, that really strong sense of community, um, because it is this weird thing to be doing if you live in a big city, especially in New York, maybe a little bit less in LA, but, uh, it is an interesting dynamic. And, you know, my, I have had a couple buddies that moved from New York and then they left New York and went back to Hawaii. And it's so interesting. They're like, I miss New York surf culture so much. And even though you're like in the, the place for surfing, you're in Hawaii, they're like, New York surf culture is something special, you know? And I kind of imagine LA would have a little bit of that versus, well, I don't know. Maybe LA culture would probably be closer to Hawaii surf culture in some ways, but there's probably like some stoke there that different in Hawaii than from in Hawaii. It's interesting. I would say that out of everywhere I've been in the world, there's something extremely unique about the New York surf culture. And I think because it's a smaller community, everybody really knows it each other and there's also only like really you know so yeah it's just a different like getting on a train and dealing with the snow and there's so many like elemental and proximity factors that equate to it that are really like kind of i mean there's not many other places that i've experienced in the world that have that much like connection between the community and the culture of surfing and the people that are surfing there. It takes like a unique dedication and a unique kind of person that again has like a high, you know, froth level. Um, And also, yeah, like super dedicated at the end of the day, you know, just even everybody in LA has a car. Everybody drives that car to the beach by themselves or in Hawaii, people are walking to the beach and surfing what's in front where like in New York, it's like everybody's connecting to even get to the beach. Yeah. You know, so it's like it's something that's really unique and maybe something close that I've experienced to that is actually like the Great Lakes surfing community, people in Canada surfing mm-hmm. the lakes and huh. lake surfers because lake surfers again are it's like a different kind of crew who's doing it and it's really small. So so yeah, out of everywhere I've been in the world, I would say that New York is probably the most like tight knit, um yeah. supportive and connected community of surfers that I've experienced, especially the people living in the city or in Brooklyn and surfing like the Rockaways. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, we'll take that as a compliment. That's pretty awesome. It's epic. Uh, yeah. So, so I don't want to talk about New York culture the whole time. This is an interview about you. Um, but actually, I had a. I'm going to start a new question to start off these uh, podcast interviews. Um, what is the most magical experience you've ever had surfing? Like your favorite memory of it? Wow. It's hard to choose one. Really? Yeah, I know. It's really hard to choose one. I mean, like, yeah, most magical. I mean, it's really hard to say, but I think probably... Like if I was going to say one of the most memorable experiences that I've had surfing, because I've had more recently that are like just really cool and insane, you know. Um, But if I was going to say like back in the day when I was first riding for Roxy and it was like the early 2000s, maybe 2000, gosh, like five or six and maybe even two or three, like it was early, early 2000s and we were headed out to the mental wise and um People were surfing out in the Mentawise. There wasn't that many people surfing. There wasn't that many boats. There was zero land camps at the time. A lot of the waves were still being discovered. 
And we ended up surfing this place that is now called Roxy's that we called Roxy's because we're from what we understand, like some of the first people to have surfed it and people probably surfed it before us, but we named it and people literally were there by ourselves. And this really felt far away, you know, because it's like. Yeah, it was definitely a different time and a different experience and no phones and no all that stuff, right? And we're just on the Indies too. Um, Albert was the captain, legend. He's like actually him and and Martin Daly. Like they, those two guys kind of discovered a lot of Indonesia and um, especially the Mento wise, but those two dudes were like kind of just doing, and there's other people, you know, Captain Matt who does the Mangalui or was doing the Mangalui, like, but there were like a couple of the first kind of pirates out there finding waves. And we rolled up to this place that was the most perfect right ever for longboarding specifically because a lot yeah. of the waves out there were heavier. And at this time, you might roll up to HTs or macaronis and there'd be one other boat because really there weren't many boats out there at that time. And again, no land camps, nobody around. And we just were surfing perfect waves by ourselves for two days. And the people, the the villagers paddled out in canoes and they were just sitting in the channel fishing and, and watching us tripping out, really. Right. And a couple of them tried to catch some waves in their canoes. And I remember one of them <laughs> flipped over. Uh, but they, we just felt like we were at the end of the earth, you know, and getting wow. to experience in this you know, thing then like, I guess like in barbarian days, you read stories about it, but really it was, it was really pure, you know, and Sonny Miller, the late great Sonny Miller was shooting on 35 millimeter film, oh motion picture film. And it was yeah. just like, really, I think like, you know, Jeff Hornbaker was on that trip, obviously shooting film. It was all film. Everything was captured on film. And so it's like, you have these kind of like, you know, relics that we're like experiencing and creating around. And, and it was just a really special time. I think I was like, maybe like, God, like 19 or something. Wow. Yeah. Oh my God. That sounds so magical. Oh yeah. You probably can't surf a wave like that anymore. Right? Or if you roll up like that, it'd just be like a million people on it. Right. I mean, mental eyes are obviously going to be a little bit less people, but I've heard that the men's are actually kind of crowded now. It's super crowded. I mean, yeah. there's so many boats, there's so many land camps, there's so much everything everywhere all at once. But I mean, if you just think about the population of the planet, since the 80s, there's double the people on the planet now than there was in 1980. Well, Twice as many humans. So when people are like, oh, you should have been here yesterday. Why is there so many people? Well, there's twice as many people on the planet. <laughs> yeah. And everybody has a smartphone. Everything's geotagged. Like, right. You know, so not complaining about that. It's just part of the evolution of, of, you know, the planet. And there's just so many humans, you know, and there's only so much free space. But then, you know, you can go to these other places. And, and that's why I've been interested in colder water adventures lately and kind of places off the beaten path that aren't so mm -hmm. kind of known. Because, like, you can still have those moments where you might be, you know, some of a handful of people out and that's it. And it's really special when you get to have that experience. Oh yeah, totally. So bringing it all the way back, how did you get into surfing? Pretty much like as a kid, I was always skateboarding and I was snowboarding. I grew up in the Valley. So it was like full skating all day long. I had a lot of energy always on a board, then snowboarding in the winter. 
And then every summer we would do like a family trip, like our one family trip of the year, which was so cool. We'd like go to San Diego for the week and like, for like, you know, that was like our one week long vacation to the beach. And we would spend a whole week at the beach and we went to Solana beach and we stayed at a place called Seascape Sur. And we just surfed the beach break right in front of there down these stairs. And, and my dad would always surf and I'd always get in the water with him. And it's just something that I wanted to do. I wanted to do, I wanted to do I'd boogie board. And I wanted to do it more than just that week, you know? And so kind of when I got a little older, I showed a huge interest and I was like, I really want to surf. And my dad's like, listen, I'm not going to like take you surfing with me until you like learn the ocean. So when I was like 14, I did junior lifeguards, spent a whole summer running and swimming and learning the currents and learning the ocean. And at the end of junior guards every day, we would like play like, you know, a game where basically like everybody could, there's only, you know, so many surfboards and all of us kids and whoever fell, like lost the board, lost your turn. So you'd try and hold on to it because we didn't have leashes and stuff. And, and, um, and yeah, that was when I got into surfing. And then that school year, my dad and I started going on the weekends together because he could just then surf with me. He didn't have to teach me. He could just like go with me as a friend. So I spent like too much time in a parking lot hanging out with a bunch of old guys drinking coffee in the dark. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that whole winter we were at C Street every day oh, on nice. the weekends. Like yeah. Saturday, Sunday, we'd hit C Street. I was like, you know, 15 then. And then that next summer after summer school, I was like dropped off at First Point Malibu every day after nice. school. So I spent a whole summer there. And then, yeah, it all happened pretty quickly. And what kind of led you into longboarding as opposed to, you know, what a, you know, riding a shortboard or any other kind of craft? I mean, I think too, it's like the, the lifeguard boards we had to surf on were longboards. My dad rode like a 710. I remember my first surfboard was my dad's old surfboard and it was like a 710 Stewart blaster, which when you're like 15, that kind of feels like a longboard mid-length, you know, it's like almost eight feet of board. Um, and then I was like surfing places like Malibu and C street and, you know, Leo Carrillo, that's where I did junior lifeguards. So I'm just surfing all these iconic point breaks. And it was either, I was going to ride like a super hot chip, high performance board. I mean, it was like the late nineties, you know? So I was either going to ride like a super hot chip, high performance board, like Kelly Slater, you know, in Baywatch, that's all I could see, right. For surfing or my other reference of surfing and surf culture at that time was like the beach blanket bingo, like Frankie A and, you know, Frankie Avalon and Annette and like those kind of things. And they were all riding classic longboards. And that just looked more cool to me than Baywatch. Like I wasn't really that into Baywatch. And I was like, man, those guys are cool. They're like hanging at the beach all day. They're like playing music by a fire. Yeah. It was just what I like resonated more with. And I was surfing the waves that they were surfing in those movies. So I just grabbed and I was surfing with my dad and all of his buddies. They were all riding longboards. So, you know, that's just kind of how it went. Yeah, I think if just... I grew up in Huntington or something, it might have been a different experience. But, you know, growing up in the valley and being close to all these like world class point breaks, 
it just makes sense to ride a longboard or else I might have just been frustrated. Hey everyone, it's Van. Hopefully you've been enjoying the podcast. Hopefully you've been listening to some good stories, getting some good tips that are helping you improve as a surfer. If so, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review. It'll only take you literally a few seconds and share it with your friends. That's the best way you can support me so I can continue to create awesome new content for you. So thanks. Right. And so how, how did your career take off? Like starting, you know, going from, you know, just surfing with your dad and, you know, Malibu and just having fun to, you know, getting on a Roxy. It happened really quick. I just was like surfing. I joined the Malibu Surfing Association. Everybody was talking about going to Costa Rica for the Rabbit Kekai contest. And so I was like, I want to go to Costa Rica. So I saved up all this money and like selling candy at school, like actual candy, bought myself a plane ticket, went to Costa Rica. And then everybody was talking about going to Australia. And I was like, I want to save up for that. And my mom had always wanted to go to Australia. She's like, well, if you pay for yourself to go, I just had a bunch of jobs as a kid. I was like painting fences, babysitting, like what could I do? Washing cars, selling candy, everything I could. So I saved up to get my plane ticket to Australia and my parents couldn't afford a plane ticket on the time at the time for the, themselves, but they were like, you're going to Australia. That's far. My mom wanted to move to Australia when she was younger at one point. And so my grandma got my mom a ticket. And so me and my mom got to go to oh, Australia nice. and I went actually with Chad and Tracy Marshall, which was sweet because we'd all surf together as kids. So it was like, you know, me and Trace are like 15 and Chad's like 13 and we're just like running around Australia. And it was that trip that I paddled out to surf uh, Tea Tree and Jeff Hackman and Donald Takayama were paddling out and they saw me get a wave and they just, you know, were like, wow, like, who is that? And they asked Joel Tudor. And, you know, I would always see Joel at Malibu surfing and he was probably the person I looked up to the most, you know, this amazing goofy foot with like the best style ever, you know, and there wasn't that many people surfing the types of boards that we were all surfing at that time. And it was like, either you're a short border or you're like a high performance long border. There was yeah. like not really logging. Right. And, and, you know, all the, all the crew at Malibu was logging, you know, cause it was like a time capsule kind of thing. So there was really not many of us, you know, at that time. So I was like, oh, he's my hero. You know, Joel's like, I, you know, and I'm a goofy foot. He's a goofy foot. So Joel's like, oh, that's Cassie. And so the next day, basically Donald came up and asked my mom if he could talk to me first. Cause I was like a little kid and my mom's like, yeah, she's right there. Go talk to her, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then he was like, Hey, you know, I'd like to make you a surfboard. And when we get home, can you come down? So I got home and I got my license and I saved up all this money. So I bought myself a little Toyota truck, you know, for $5,000. I was like, so proud of myself. And I drove down, he gave me a surfboard, which is the biggest deal ever. Yeah. And, uh, I took it to the Roxy pro at C street and I won and oh, Randy Hild came up to me with Kenna Bartell and they said, Hey, we've been talking to Jeff Hackman. Um, how do you like to be on the Roxy team? And that was it. Oh, wow. That's magical. Now, when this happened, were you aware of how good you were? Was this something that you were taking really seriously? Like, I want to be like the best longboarder ever, or was it more of this casual thing? You're out there, you're having fun and you're just kind of letting things flow. And then this just, you know, happened. 
it all kind of happened. Like when I was a kid, there was no like professional surfing. Like unless you were Kelly Slater or Rob Machado, like I didn't even know what pro surfing was. I didn't, I never was like, I'm going to be a pro surfer. Like my parents, like even when I was doing contests, they were all at my sister's soccer teams, uh, soccer team meets. They never came to my contest. They didn't push me. Like surfing was something that gave me a lot of joy. Um, it was something that also gave me a lot of focus. It was something that like, you know, had me working all these jobs to make money so I could go surfing, you know? Um, and it was something that was like really cool to dedicate myself to, um, And it made a lot of sense for me because I felt like a lot of other things didn't make sense. Like school and like that linear trajectory of life felt really foreign to me, but surfing made sense and I didn't know why. So I put my whole heart into it, but never in a million years did I think I was going to be a pro surfer. I don't even think it was like until like five or so years into me surfing and that was my life that I was like, whoa, I'm like a pro surfer. This is crazy. Must have been kind of a good feeling though, right? To be like, oh, I'm kind of making it. I'm, this is like a new path for my life. Yeah. You know, I mean, for really, I was just like grateful to be doing something that brought me a lot of joy, you know, because it felt like life on land, like was a little black and white before I started surfing. I was like, man, you know, like it's so crazy that we like are living on this like ball that's like hurling through space at billions of miles an hour but like what we're just gonna like go to school and get married and have kids and pay taxes and die like that doesn't feel that cool yeah to be honest and like surfing felt like kind of technicolor and like yeah multi-dimensional and so it was more just that that it gave me a way to kind of like give meaning to my life Right. For sure. And, I mean, and it was beautiful. You know, it's like, I mean, we didn't really have like pro contests. Like you won a contest back in the day, you'd win like a coffee cup and like maybe some wax. Like it's, it's, you mm. know, there was maybe like $300 that you'd get. Like it wasn't like, you yeah. know. Okay. So like, was it like, how competitive was it? I have no, I mean, I, I just got a longboard and, you know, literally this summer, I, I mean, I learned on a longboard obviously, but after a long time, like I just got back on a longboard Normally I ride shortboards and I have to say I had so much fun and I regret not getting a longboard a long time ago. Like, cause it just makes like one foot waves, like so much fun. And, um, I absolutely suck at riding a longboard, but I'm like, damn, this is such a great experience. And I think it teaches you things that, you know, you, it just opens your eyes to different ways of reading the wave and everything. Um, so it's been really interesting riding that log. Um, but you know, what was it like for you kind of like going into this more competitive mindset? Like, were you really starting to get, you know, think about technique a lot and how to improve or, you know, this world of longboarding, I'm not, I'm not the, the, I'm total beginner at it. So like, how do you think about it in terms of like improving at longboarding? To be honest, like never was I competitive and I'm still not and never was competition something that we were like striving to get better like the kids now are. It was just an opportunity to be together and surf waves together. It was like an excuse, you know, and even for us at that time, it was like if the waves were small, we were longboarding. If the waves were bigger, we'd be on single fins up at third point riding like what people call mid legs or whatever, like single, you know whatever eggs or whatever you want to call it fishes and stuff like we were just like surfing and surfing kind of more retro boards in those style you know that kind of style so 
Yeah, like it was just like a whole different time than it is now. And it's cool because it's like, I think the competitive aspect of it and how it shifted to like now the WSL has a longboard tour and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of helped to make that happen through Roxy and Linda Benson and the ASP at the time. I helped to kind of create, you know, with Roxy Europe um, and the US really, but like those events in Europe, you know, in France and then. Then we did the Swatch events in in China, and then the ASP became the WSL or whatever. And then now there's events worldwide, but like there wasn't when I was a kid at mm. all, you know? And it's only kind of like I helped to do that for the ladies, and Joel really was doing that for the guys with vans, with the duct tape. And mm. I think, you know, those kind of things are what put helped to put longboarding on the map again and the logging that we're doing now. And obviously, like, Izzy does the Mexi log, which has brought a lot of, you know, support to like the both Mexican and worldwide community, you know, but yeah. I think it's only really been in like the last, like probably, you know, 15 years or so and more since like Joel was doing those events. I was doing them with, with Roxy. And then now there's other kind of like pop-up events, you know, the single fin and mingle that happens over in um, New Zealand and the one that happens over in, um, also uh portugal and things mm -hmm. like that are now starting to come up you know yeah, but right but when i was doing it as a kid it wasn't really like that you know mm -hmm. just simpler times in, in a lot of ways which just simple we were going surfing like i was a professional surfer not to like win a contest like what i was doing was like grateful to like film really cool movie parts and mm -hmm. get photos in magazines and and kind of go I was like able to kind of, I felt really grateful because I was able to like show my style really. Because yeah. like, you know, I think now there's more opportunity for like the way the format is. But at that time, everything was so progressively minded right. that I think like the nuances and subtleties of what like logging and classic style longboarding is would have been lost in that platform until like really things started to change. And Joel started doing his thing and like, you know, kind of bringing back like what competition used to be where you get bonuses for riding shared waves together. Like, oh, you yeah. know, it's like wow. things like that, you know, that are like really cool. It's like right. Margot does the Queen Surf Festival in, in France every year. And now that's sponsored by Vans. And like, mm. that's a really fun and interesting, you know, event. But yeah, mm. now they have the ASP stuff. But I think this is only like the second or third year that they've had a thing for long like real longboarding like classic longboarding for the wsl right right got it yeah i definitely want to get into you know style because i'm super curious to hear your thoughts on that but before maybe we can get there because i think that'll be kind of like that's almost like a, an advanced section why don't we start with just some more basics like you know i'm just starting to get into longboarding kind of what are your your best tips for someone that's like a beginner at longboarding and how you know what are the most common mistakes i'm probably going to make and how do i avoid them um yeah i mean that's especially coming from shortboarding it's like don't overdo it slowing everything down is important right because it's like I feel like with smaller boards and stuff, like really, you know, you're still moving your feet to get them in the right place to turn. But I notice a lot of people when they're first going from like smaller boards to long boards that they try and like overpower something. Mm -hmm. And then it's like they go down, you know, I think turning is one of the hardest things. Well, that's so 
fascinating and counterintuitive some, in some ways because I almost am, and this shows you exactly how bad I'm going to be at longboarding. But I was like, oh, if I would need to try to turn a longboard, I'm going to have to overpower it because the board is so big. But you're telling me, no, that's that's not the way to do it. No, definitely not. Like oh, really wow. longboarding is all about gliding. So getting yourself, I mean, that's one thing that that really makes classic logging beautiful is like setting yourself up in the right part of the wave to trim, right? Yeah. And it's like subtle maneuvers. Like I'm not a very big person. I ride a nine five, nine six. That's my normal longboard. How am I going to be doing these big turns? There's no way I'm overpowering that thing. It just doesn't make sense. Like, you know, physics wise and hydrodynamics, when you take all that into account, it's all about putting your feet in the right place and setting yourself up in the right place of the wave to do the turn. So it's about like really kind of reading the wave, finding your flow. And it's almost like if the surfboard was like acupressure or acupuncture meridians, having like that right pressure in the right meridian at the right time to like allow that turn. And that's what we do and teach a lot in our, um, you know, in our workshops and retreats is like longboarding, you know, like there's so much about us as humans that we feel like we have to overpower everything. But really, I think longboarding and longboarding like in the right way really teaches you those subtle elements of like surrender, letting go and placement and timing. Wow. I really love that metaphor, that way of explaining it because it's totally different from what I expected. Like turning a, you know, you'll see people just like, you know, ripping these crazy turns on these big boards. And in my head, I was always like, man, they must be pushing really hard. But from what you're telling me, it's really not that. That's like, and it's, that sounds kind of magical. That sounds actually like kind of amazing, you know, because there's that triumph of like technique over just like pure muscle. And that's, that's super amazing. Technique, for sure. It's like if you see somebody like, like Taylor Jensen, probably one of the best high performance longboarders that you'll see around, you know, and he's got like, you know, size 14 feet, right? And he's riding a longboard that's like essentially almost like a mid-length for somebody like my size, right? Because he'll be riding super thin, super high-performance boards, and he does it with so much flow and grace and speed. It's different than what I'm riding. And he will really make it like so beautiful and really powerful. And it's not like he's not pushing hard, but he's in his feet are in the right place. And also, if you think about his feet, his feet take up the whole board. You know what I mean? Mm, Where somebody yeah. like my size, I really have to have my feet in exactly the right place at the right time. I still push hard, but I'm not overpowering it. Right. Like if I wasn't in the right place, I wouldn't be able to do that turn. I might hurt my knee or hurt my body or just eat it right but right i'm still turning hard but i'm not trying to overpower something I, it's just about that technique and those exact places you know that's so cool yeah you know and it's it's interesting because i can totally see how that will translate even if you're riding a board that's smaller too like if you can turn a long board turning a short board is going to be a piece of cake right and those things are going to mutually kind of like help each other in a lot of ways Totally. And again, it's about placement because whether you're on a short board, a long board, a mid length or whatever, the bigger the board, the more you're moving your feet. Right. You know, the smaller the board, you're not moving your feet as much, but you're still watching like, you know, they're moving their feet all the time. Just little, little, little bits, you know, and that's sure. why I kind of brought up that like high performance longboarding, you know, somebody like Taylor, you know, one of the best in the world. 
He can also rip on a log, but he chooses to ride those kind of more performance style surfboards and he does beautiful turns. But like, if you're watching, like really start to watch people's movements and there's so many subtle movements from like a front hand driving turn to like then cutting back and then kind of wrapping it around again. Like when you start to really see how much people are moving their feet, you're like, whoa, but it doesn't look like it. Because like, it's about looking like it's flowing. And if you're not watching their feet, you would miss it. So you almost have to not watch them. You got to watch their feet and see what's happening. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Because on a longboard, those movements are going to be much more pronounced. That's super cool. Mm -hmm. And the the other thing I think that was really interesting about what you mentioned, you know, is just the wave itself, right? And that's what riding a longboard has really kind of opened my eyes to. You're just reading the wave in a different way. You know, you mentioned before, it's like, it's, it's about the right pressure on the board, but then it's also about placing the turn on the right section of the wave as well. And that's going to be true, whether you're riding a, a bigger board or a smaller board. But when you're riding a long board, I would imagine there's it, that relationship with the wave must become, I don't know, it feels like you have to read it in a different way. And like, to nose ride, I mean, I have never nose ridden properly, right? But to pull off a successful nose ride, that just seems like such a delicate balance of being in the right spot on the wave, you know? Totally. And nose riding, I mean, everything about surfing is timing, you know? And nose rides are just as critical as big turns on shortboards because it's about being in a critical place to be able to do that maneuver. And just like, you know, you wouldn't really like, it's like setting up the right turn in the right place on a smaller board. It's just like setting up like the right nose ride in the right section on a long board. And, and again, knowing, being able to read in real time what's happening, like not every wave really offers an opportunity for nose riding, you know? So it's like, too, it's like, I feel like really good surfing is like reading the waves. Totally. That's like the most, that's the skill you start at the very beginning. And then that's the thing that never ends, right? It's just getting better and better at reading the wave and adjusting what you're going to do with it. So what are are your tips then in terms of like cross-stepping and then trying to, to get a proper nose ride? I mean, that's, that's where it kind of gets to like timing is everything. So like slowing down is important and like, before you can like be cross-stepping and walking to the right part of the wave, um, you need to understand how to turn your board to set up for it. Every good nose ride starts with a better turn to put you in the right place. That's so fascinating because <laughs> again, as a total coop longboarder, I'm just like, oh, I thought you just like run to the nose as quick as you can to to get your nose right. But it's it really gotta do a turn first. Interesting. Okay. Every good nose ride starts with a good turn that sets you up in the right place on the wave. Because it's yeah, again, which is like it's just so crazy because you got to go back before you go forward. Right. Like, which is like a good metaphor for life. Like it's really important to review what's happening there before you kind of move forward. And I think that that's the thing. It's like, everything is like, there's so many nuances and, and things take time. And we have so many people that come on our retreats and, you know, which is also why I did like the online course with the inertia, because it's like a way to kind of like visually break down what I'm saying right now. Yeah. Right. Because like us having this conversation, you're just like, wait, 
what? Like, hold on. Like, you know, and most people are like, wait, what? I thought I just ran to the nose, you know, like, yeah. and it's like, no, like the setup is the most important part of the nose ride. Cause if you're not in the right zone, like you're just not in the right zone again, like, right, you right. know, wave, like how long is that a wave like Malibu? There's a long wall, you know? Yep. Even on the East Coast, when Rockaway is doing its thing, there's a long wall. When Ditch is doing its thing, there's a long wall. A wave like Sano has like a really tight pocket for nose riding. Because nose rides are critical maneuvers. You got to be in the pocket. If you're out on the shoulder, it doesn't count and you're not actually in the right place anyway. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's really, it's it's massive. Like it's probably if I was to tell anybody one thing, that would be the thing I would say for nose riding, get really good at turning first. Mm, fascinating. And one other thing is that I noticed that you're, you know, you mentioned how Joel is a goofy footer and you're a goofy footer. Is it the same thing when you're riding? A, I mean, it does, is being a goofy footer harder on a longboard? I mean, I personally think that being goofy foot, I can nose ride more critically backside than I can front side. Huh. Is it because like you have your heel edge rather than your toe edge. So if you think about that heel edge and that counterweight of your heel, which like you got your butt, you know, I have a big butt. So, you know, it's a good counter rate to hold me into the pocket. So, you know what I mean? Oh, but like, God. if you think about it from that, you know, perspective, when you have your toe edge and everything else is hanging out, you know, I personally think that I can get more critical on nose rides going backside than I can front side. Interesting. It sounds, nah, it's pretty different, but like, you know, at the top levels, people talk about how being backside in a barrel is better because you can control your speed a little bit better, but that's a very different, different technique, but you're still in this very critical part of the wave, huh? That's really interesting. Very critical part. And think about it just like kind of like ergonomically, like how your body fits on it from like a hydrodynamic perspective. You know, if like a wave is here and you've got like, you know, the back part of my body with my heel edge is going to have a lot more weight than the front side of my body. So if I'm going down the line this way and, and I'm front side, there's more weight over on this side. So it's harder to keep that inside rail engaged right? as it in if I'm this way. And I'm on my heel edge to keep that inside rail engaged. Because really it has to do with whatever rail is the inside rail. So if I'm going left, it's my left rail. If I'm going right, it's my right rail. So right, if you right. think about it just from like that kind of perspective, it, it makes sense. No, it does make sense. Oh, fascinating. And so, you know, you've been surfing your entire life now. Like what do you, what do you, what kind of things do you focus on, you know, in terms of your surfing? You know, I mean, gosh, riding as many different boards as I possibly can. Hmm. That gets me so pumped. Like I've been working on a new model with my really good friend and one of my favorite surfers ever, Dane Peterson, for a couple years now, really working on creating a longboard that is going to be, you know, for, you know, smaller framed people, you know, um, whether they're like ladies or just smaller framed people in general, you know what I mean? Like... Like just so, you know, again, going back to hydrodynamics, like what gives us the opportunity to turn, lock that thing in, you know, be really engaged with the movement of the rails and really rail to rail surfing and also nose riding while still having a log and creating it again for smaller frame people. Right. So it's like, 
that's got me super juiced up because it got me writing different boards. It got us both thinking in different ways. It's pushed him to kind of like be shaping in different ways that he's never has. You know, we're trying different fins. We're trying all this crazy stuff. And so it's just so groovy because it's just like, I love that stuff. You know, I, I went through like, you know, again, it's like I went through years of surfing that I was just so frothing. And then I went through years of like a slump, like any art or any passion, you know, you're going to hit your wall. Like once I started yeah. kind of being in like, oh, I have to go to competitions. Oh, I have, you know, it's like it was a blessing. And then it felt like something I had to do. And then it was like, oh, go here, ride this board, wear this thing, do this thing in this place. And just the whole marketing part of like surf culture kind of just like I got burnt out, to be mm. honest. Yeah. Like 15 years in, I got a little burnt out. 20 years in, I was a little burnt out. It was like that time frame. And then I had like injury upon injury upon injury, concussions, dislocated shoulders, blown out knees, hips, oh, like man. everything. Just like boom, boom, boom. Left professional surfing, started my own business. But there was like a good five to seven year period where I was like, I just needed a break. Yeah. And it's like, now I'm like, so I started writing different boards when I came back. My body's feeling good again, you know, like I'm like, okay, I got to take care of my fitness. I'm, you know, be smarter and, and learn new ways to move so I can kind of do the best I can to mitigate injury, you know? Yeah. And started working on these boards with Dane, started teaching surfing more and more, worked on my Inspire course with the Inertia. Like all those things got me so inspired. To, and now I feel like surfing is brand new again. That's so epic. It's so sweet. And I'm better at surfing than I've ever been. And that's what's so cool about surfing is that it's a forever opportunity to continue. It's like, I think you just refine and refine and refine and refine. It's like you look at somebody yeah. like Jerry Lopez. Like he is surfing so beautifully and like he just keeps getting better. And you're just like, what, you know? So it's like, because he just, you know, surfs with so much more and more precision. And I yeah. think that that's the thing. It's like, how do we be more precise? How do we do less in a more beautiful way? Mm. You know? And, and that's like the element of refining that gets me really inspired. And again, like riding different surfboards and trying everything and understanding why I like this in a different way. Because yeah. it's easy to just get stuck in the rut ride the same old thing in the same old yeah. way, surfing different waves, surfing when I normally wouldn't have gone out before. All those kind of things like get me so juiced. I'm and, like so fired up. And so what you said earlier uh, about refining and doing, being more precise while doing less in some ways, is that how you think about style? It is, you know, it is. Like I want to do less in a more like impactful way. Hmm. That's super cool. I really like the way you explain that. And, you know, there's so many different styles when it comes to longboarding. Longboarding, obviously, there's this very minimalist style. And I, I, I like that way of thinking about it. But I've also seen lots of longboarders that are much more maximalist in their style as well, or more a little bit more florid. And, it, and it's it's interesting, but it's, it's all beautiful in its own way. But, um, yeah. 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, at one point in my surfing, I was like trying to, you know, fit in the heels and the 10 and, you know, the five and then the kick five and the floater and then this. And it's like, I'm just like not trying to fit stuff in, you know, it's like rather than trying to fit it all in, like, let's like let things last a little longer. Yeah. Cool. And actually, I'm really curious because I would I would kind of imagine this longboarding, this longboard that you're developing for smaller frame surfers is going to be a big hit because there's going to be tons of female, you know, longboarders that where your big traditional logs are not going to work for them. Like what, how are you adjusting that design to make it work for your body and and for your size? Totally. Just like a little bit more refined rails without being too refined and just kind of like tightening up the dimensions a little bit while still like letting it be loggy. And it's kind of more of like a wide point back involvement style surfboard. Um, when I was younger, I was riding a lot more right wide point forward surfboards. And now I've been riding more wide point back surfboards. But then, you know, one of Dane who does unhinged surfboards is his brand. One of Dane's like probably most, um, known surfboards is his pig. And the pig is amazing. The pig is like, you know, obviously a very classic design, the pig. It's like a very old design that, you know, everybody has like a different version of, and his version works amazing for reeling perfect point breaks. Mm. But, you know, it's not my favorite board surfing at Santa or something. Like, so what we're working on is something that has a little bit softer rails, not as, not as like refined from like a volume perspective, but not as like pinched and, you know, knifey. So something a little fuller, something a little softer, something that's going to kind of glide through flat spots, but also turn on the dime so you can get into that pocket that's not as stretched out as a place like Malibu quicker. Uh, something with a, a good enough amount of rocker that's going to kind of get you, you know, in those tighter spaces, in and out of those tire, tighter spaces with more ease. Got it. And is this board model ready already if people are interested in it? Pretty much, you know, like if you hit up Dane and you're like, I want the Cassia model or unhinged surfboards, um, he's got it. Like we just scanned a version. We kind of made a couple because everything was hand-shaped, you know, he's such an amazing maestro. He was hand-shaping everything and we're like, okay, we want to be able to replicate this as best as possible. So let's get one that we're like, this checks all the boxes the best we can. You know, again, there's not one board for everything. So I have my pig, but then I want a model that I can like take to waves that aren't as like reeling, you know? Yeah. Um, so checked all the boxes that we wanted to check. We've been playing with fins for the last couple of years. We finally found something that checks all those boxes. And so I'm really excited about it. We're going to be doing a workshop, kind of talk about it in February, end of February at this pop-up spot that I've been doing with my friend Kristen Nichols here in uh, LA in Venice called Low Tide. And so we'll do a chat on it, bring a bunch of boards there, you know, have people feel them out. They can order them. But yeah, for people that want some, he's already made a couple, you know, based off what we've been working on. But it's just kind of coming into cohesion. Like actually me and my friend Leah Dawson and Michaela Smith, we were all just like, riding the couple different versions the Mm -hmm. last few days down in san diego which is why i have like a really cool you know (laughs) neck tan line uh or as we call it the shithead you know oh my god yeah (laughs) um but yeah we're we all kind of were like these are the ones let's do it and so we're like 
just getting over the line and I'm so pumped. Oh yeah. Epic. Epic. Well, speaking of bad tan lines, I have like this two inch tan line right above like my board shorts, but then below my wetsuit top, it's just like this dark line and it looks so bad. I call it the tramp stamp. It's pretty embarrassing, but, uh, I, I, I relate. love it. I relate on the bad, uh, tan line right now we're so hilarious surfers like we have the funniest goofiest tan lines you know depending on what's happening and they're constantly changing and it's just so funny i mean yeah we should start something just like a tan lines like blog or something where people can just like send in their like weird surfing tan lines because it'd be hilarious it's like it'll be like the tan line version of sad pads you know that instagram account no there's this instagram account and it's just all people like having the craziest like tail pad configurations it'll be like a tail pad on the front of the board and oh my gosh just like put all i mean i guess on a traditional longboard you don't have track pads but it's pretty funny like all sorts of weird stuff you know fins backwards all that kind of stuff you know it's, it's pretty hilarious that's hilarious well herbie fletcher one of like the most legendary surfers and longboarders his whole thing was astro deck you know and he had oh. Like, really? Like, yeah, he had pads all over his board. And he was always doing these like epic critical nose ride 360s. And like, oh man, yeah, it was, it was like the 90s and he was really doing it. And I think he like, like, I'm not sure. So don't quote me on it, but I think he like launched Astro Deck or was like one of the founders of Astro Deck. Oh, wow. There was That's a sweet. definite time between the 90s and the early 2000s that traction pad on longboards was a thing. Oh. That's a lot of long, that's a lot of traction pad too. It's that's, a that's lot pretty... of pad. Yeah. <laughs> but he freaking made it look so good. I mean, if you like Google some Herbie Fletcher, old school stuff, like he's just like taking the longboard into the coolest things and just like slide the slide slip boogie, you know, just sliding out the tail as he comes down the face. It's just so cool. Sweet. I'll have to check it out. And you're about to go on a retreat. Is that right? Down in Nicaragua, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm leaving tomorrow um, to Nicaragua to go work with my friends at Rise Up. So this is my fourth season back working with Rise Up. Um, We do two retreats in the north of Nicaragua every year together. And it's honestly my favorite way to start out the year. Uh, That time of year there, it's like just awesome. It's near the boom, so everybody knows about the boom, but it's not boom season. So it's actually like offshore, not too strong offshore, not as crowded as some other places down there get. It's just like perfect for longboarding and riding little fishes in mid-lengths, you know. And it's cool because like everybody goes down there for like the boom and we're not surfing the boom and we're not surfing that time of year. So it's pretty, we have a lot of like kind of empty space to kind of surf and it's really nice. Sweet. Any so you guys obviously surf your brains out. Anything else that happens on the retreats that that you kind of make special or kind of add your Casio flair to? Or totally, it's like you know we surf our brains out. Very important. Uh, <laughs> we also have daily yoga. Super important to keep the body moving. We're also doing video feedback and analysis. So we're also talking about a lot of the very technical pieces and breaking it down through video analysis, like some of the stuff that we're talking about now and giving people both real time in the water coaching and also bringing it back to the video so they can actually have like a conscious understanding of it and see themselves doing it so they can create that kind of like mind body connection that really helps to track and, and, you know, 
essentially reprogramming the muscle memory and reprogramming the neurological memory around movement, you know? So that's a really huge part of it. And then I'm like really into sound sound meditation. So I do some sound meditation uh, sessions throughout the time together. And that's a really cool way for people to drop in and maybe gain some new tools and, and bring back a more mindful awareness and a way to support their nervous systems. Cool. It sounds very nice. I mean, like surfing is this healing thing in practice in its own. And then it sounds like the, these sound baths or these, these practices are just going to add to it. That's epic. Totally. It's like, I feel like surfing like brings a lot up, right? Like the ocean is like this giant mirror that reflects to us all aspects of ourselves. So I, I find personally that a lot of the things that are up for us in our day-to-day -day lives come up through we can we can witness them through the water you know mm. it's like water always finds the lowest point it always finds the cracks and bursts open right so it's like as much as people are there to get amazing at surfing or refine their surfing we could say they're also there because usually people are like you know need a break from their day-to-day -day life they're looking for something different they're there to make like a movement you know that's what surfing was for me when i found it i'm like oh Life makes sense now because it didn't really make sense before I found surfing. So it was like, okay, this is something I can get into and stick around for, you know? So it felt like, you know, people sometimes will come up, not always, but emotional stuff. And I feel like the movement with like the yoga and, and also the support with the sound meditations are ways that people can really like ground um, a lot of whatever we're working on, you know, and some people are just having like the best time ever, but sometimes like, like I said, emotional stuff will come up. So it's nice to have like a couple other elements that just support people on a day to day. Oh, that's wonderful. All right. Well, I'm going to work towards closing up. I got one last question for you. Yeah. yeah. This is actually a question that George asked me, our, our mutual friend. If you had to surf the same wave for the rest of your life, what would that wave be and what would the conditions be like? So describe to me like that perfect wave, like in detail, like, and you had a surfer for the rest of your life, what would it be Gosh. like? Gosh, I mean, you know, it would be probably like a wave in between it would be a wave in between like a macaronis and a saladita, you know, a long left point break. Four to six feet. Four to six feet. Yeah. All it's right. like, I want to say three to five, but if it's for the rest of my life, I want to get more <laughs> tubes. So I would say four, four to six. So you're getting tubed in this baby. That's, oh, that's yeah. There's yeah. tubes, there's nose ride sections, there's big cutback sections, there's Ooh. critical sections, there's everything. Cause if it was just solid eat, yeah. I would get super bored. That wave is right. pretty soft and it's not tubing, you know, but if it was just a freight tra training tube, like I want to be able to ride all my boards there. So, you know. Damn, That's why I'm like a mix between like a macaron, like if you could put like, you know, macaronis, which is kind of more of a down the line, really high performance wave, but yeah. can be a little bit like for longboarding in certain sections at certain tides and depending on the swell direction. So, you know, some, some nice longboard sections, basically like a Rincon in reverse. That's I was about to be. say, I, your wave sounds perfect. I just want the right version of it. And Rincon yeah. is pretty perfect. So, so yeah. it'd be Rincon in reverse. That's what I want. All right. Who would you, also, who would you 
who would you have there with you? Would it just be you alone, just a few buddies, like a big party with a bunch of your friends? What would that vibe be? It would be a big party with a bunch of my friends. The right. surfing to me is about also community and sharing waves and like yelling at each other when we get a cool one, like, you know, and I want to be hooting for my friends coming down the line and I want them to hoot for me too. So that's sick. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll end it on that. Thanks for joining Cassia. Thank you so much for having me, Van. So, so lovely to be together. All right. Hey everyone, it's Van. Hopefully you've been enjoying the podcast. Hopefully you've been listening to some good stories, getting some good tips that are helping you improve as a surfer. If so, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review. It'll only take you literally a few seconds and share it with your friends. That's the best way you can support me so I can continue to create awesome new content for you. So thanks.